It is such a privilege to be here with you this evening, to be able to have this honor to speak from God's word with you. I'm just so looking forward to this. So I want to open us in a word of prayer, and then I will discuss what we're going to discuss. Lord God, we just uh, are so grateful the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised him up to be seated beside you at the right hand of your throne. What an amazing thought, Lord. And, and then to think that you would do that for sinners like us. Lord, we are just overwhelmed. We're amazed at the gift of your grace and your mercy in our lives the magnificence of who you are and the privilege that we have to worship you. Lord, we commit this to you tonight. We pray that it's all to your glory. We ask your blessing. We ask for wisdom. And Lord, I just ask that the eyes of our heart would be open. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I pondered what I would talk about, the, my first opportunity to preach here at Riverbend, I thought that I would like to speak on something that would really be an encouragement to everybody. And of course, we know the word of God is always encouraging, right? But I thought, okay, for that to happen, what we all have in common is our sin, right? Well, I didn't really want to just talk about sin. So I thought about overcoming sin. How about that? Anybody struggle with that? Overcoming sin? Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 tonight because we're going to look into a passage of Scripture that gives us some, some really some very powerful insight into overcoming sin in our lives. The book of Ephesians is one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament. It's divided into to two parts, as many of you probably know. The first half is doctrine. It's, it's the teaching really about the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. It's all, it's all factual information. There are no commands given in the first three books of Ephesians. The second three books are quite different. It's where we get to practice what we were taught in the first three books. So it's easily divided up. Um, just um, a little bit of background information. The church at Ephesus was probably started somewhere around AD 50 probably by Priscilla and Aquila. Paul wrote this epistle from prison somewhere around AD 60 to 62. Now, he had been at the church in Ephesus about four years prior to that, so he knew the church, though he was not instrumental in planting it. He, he, so, um, so as we begin to look at this book, some of the, some of the things that we're going to look at is is just this, it's just such an encouraging book. The, the, the Ephesians didn't have any huge problems to deal with. And so Paul is able to take them and to encourage them. One note that I would like to make is that the words at Ephesus are not in some of the primary manuscripts. And so uh, it's a question whether this is probably a cyclical letter. In other words, it was, it was preached and it, or it was written down and it was sent to several different churches. And one of those copies had the word the, the name Ephesus written on it and that's where it got tagged with the church at Ephesus and I only say that for one reason and that's this it's because this book wasn't just written to a group of people in Ephesus but it was written to us and we're going to see that as we go through this past this passage 
We're going to look at verses 15 through 23. So I'm going to read that for you. You follow along as I read and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Paul writes, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of, your call, of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first words in verse 15 are the words for this reason. And there's a reason why those words were there. Paul's referring back to the previous verses where he had taken the Ephesians, this group of saints that he identifies in verse 1 as faithful in Christ Jesus to, through a series of promises that they had been given. We could break that down simply to say that verses 3 through 6 are promises given by the Father. Verses 7 through 11 are, verse, are promises given by the Son. And verses 12 and 13 are, are promises by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is a Trinitarian effort. The, the entire Trinity is invested in, in not only saving us, but keeping us. So that was a huge encouragement to these people. So he goes on through those verses to explain that. And I must admit, as I began to approach this passage and start laying it out, I was a little bit flummoxed um, as, as to exactly how to, to work this passage into an outline. There wasn't three of these or four of those that I could just frame a nice little neat outline around. But the more I studied it, the more I realized that I, I believe what Paul is doing here is that he's really giving us a progression towards to teaching us what this prayer is about. I believe that, um, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you to just stick with me through the first part. It starts a little slow. It's kind of like climbing a 14er. Anyone know what a 14er is? Okay, for those of you who don't, Colorado has 52 peaks over 14,000 feet. So people get into climbing those peaks. Not me, I don't climb 14,000 foot peaks. But um, the, the thing about climbing these peaks is you don't start climbing rock. Uh, the beginning of the journey is rather flat. It's rather level and, and, and a lot of them, I should, I should qualify that. So, so you start out on kind of level ground, but as you begin to approach the mountain, it starts to go up. And then of course, the last part of that mountain, you're rock climbing to get to the peak. So, so that's kind of how this is laid out. That's kind of the, the method I think Paul 
looked at to, to really bring these, these saints to the place he wanted them to be. I believe we can look at this passage and understand it as five progressive thoughts that frame Paul's prayer for these saints and for us. This is really written for us as well. So as we begin to look into this, we'll start with verse 15. Paul has a confidence in these saints. There's a confidence in who they are. He starts out in verse 15 for this reason, but then he stops because he is compelled to make note of whom he is speaking to. So as he noted back in verse 3, he was writing to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now these are not the Corinthians. The Corinthians had all kinds of problems. It's not the Galatians who were being tempted to turn back to the law. It's not even the Colossians who were struggling with various kinds of philosophies that they wanted to try to add to the gospel. The, the Ephesians were a mature people. They, were, they appear to be a very mature group of, of people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul notes two characteristics that he had heard. Now remember, Paul's in prison at this time. He's, he's been in prison, so, but he's gotten some news about these people. And, and he has learned, he writes, for the faith in their Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. This is really evidence of a life of obedience, really to the two great commandments. In Matthew 22, 36, Jesus' disciples asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Their faith was a result of their love in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love for their neighbor was a fruit of that faith. So they were really living out, as best we can see from, from Paul's perspective, they were living out the two great commandments. They were faithful people. So Paul is confident in this group of people based on the news he has received in prison. <clears throat> so as we move on, Paul Paul's has a, he, he's going to make a commitment to these people. He, he's confident in who they are. He's confident in their maturity, but he has a concern. And so he commits to pray for them. Paul's commitment to pray for the saints in verse 16 and here we learn something about Paul's commitment to pray for these, these saints. John MacArthur writes, In light of their marvelous inheritance in Jesus Christ, which he refers back to for this, with the words for this reason, Paul now intercedes for the possessors of that treasure. So Paul goes on here and he says, I do not cease. What do we learn about Paul's prayer there? He is not going to quit praying for these people. He will pray continuously. He's committed to pray for them. His commitment to pray for them was out of a disciplined life of prayer. Paul, Paul exhibits such a disciplined life of prayer. I'll just note a few um, verses for you. Paul was, was very disciplined in prayer. He was a, he was a prayer warrior. Romans 1.10, I make mention of you always in my prayers 
making requests. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Colossians 1, 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Philemon 1, 4, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Are you convinced? Paul prayed constantly, he had to, to be able to accomplish that. Paul's commitment to pray for the saints is framed around two points. First of all, he gives thanks for them and his gratefulness for them is overflowing. Why is he so grateful for them? He was grateful for their growth in the gospel and he's grateful for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now he says, while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul's not just offering prayer ran for random generalities here. He has a specific thing in mind that he wants to pray for these, these saints. There are some specific intentions. So Paul recognizes the maturity of these believers and commits to pray for them. Now Paul's he expresses his concern for the saints. Now he's getting to the reason. You see, see we're, kind of, we're kind of climbing up the hill here. It's starting to get a little steeper. He's, he's going to express a concern for these saints. What's his concern? Paul starts out by noting the authority to whom his prayer is directed, the one who hears and answers our prayers. And he addresses him this way, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul referred to God in verse 3 as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers to him as God, the first person of the Godhead, the, the creator and stainer, sustainer excuse me, of all that is. In fact, in two different places, our Bibles say, in the beginning, God, right? So God was there in the beginning. He was the creator. He created everything. He, he sustains everything. And that's who Paul is addressing here right off the bat. And then you will note that both times Paul then refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never speaks of the Lord and Jesus Christ in, in a way that, that could be separated in any kind of a separable fashion. If he is one, he must be both. And Paul makes that clear in this passage that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity, and those two titles encapsulate his deity and his humanity together. We see the God-man expressed in Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, reference to Jesus Christ. And then he says, the Father of glory. Francis Folks writes, he is the father to whom all glory belongs for all the power and majesty revealed in creation. Providence and redemption are his and he the source. Such a thought of God is gives to prayer a sense of awe and strengthens faith in those who pray. 
So Paul is, is, is referencing here um, the God who is the one who answers our prayer, the God who hears our prayer, the God who responds to our prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I pray for someone, it's because they, they ask me to pray for something. Uh, they want me to pray for a lost child. Um, uh, they want me to pray for an illness or an upcoming surgery or a problem with their home or the list goes on, right? Rarely do we tell someone how we're going to pray for them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray this for you. But that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's saying, I'm going, I'm praying this for you. So what, what is this that he's going to pray? That the, the Father of glory may give to you. He's, going, he's, going, he's praying that God will give them something. So obviously it's something they don't have. God will give to these saints. This, the statement recognizes their lack of that particular thing. Paul is turning to God to give them this gift. John MacArthur again writes, It is tragic that many believers become entangled in a quest for something more in the Christian life, for something special, something extra that the ordinary Christian life does not possess. They talk of getting more of Jesus Christ, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessings, a higher life, a deeper life, as if the resources of God are divinely doled out one at a time. <clears throat> so as, as Paul goes on here, what is it that he's praying for? Well, he says he's praying for a spirit. Now... We're not going to assume that he's talking about the Holy Spirit here because I believe if he was talking about the Holy Spirit, he would have referred to him as the Spirit. This is a Spirit. And what, what Paul is really referring to here is, is a disposition or an attitude. So having said that, some of the commentators that I looked at noted that this gift could well come from the Spirit but he's not specifically re referring to the, the Holy Spirit when he says he's going, he's asking that, that God would give to them a spirit. A spirit of what? He specifically notes, first of all, a spirit of wisdom. He wants God to give them a spirit of wisdom. <clears throat> the lexicon says that it's the capacity to understand and function accordingly. Wisdom is really taking knowledge and applying it to life. It's, it's the idea of, of understanding something in, in my mind and being able to make it work in my life. That's, that's what wisdom is. If I know something and I don't follow through um, in, in a decision following along with what I know, I'm not being a wise person. So he specifically notes a wisdom, and then he says, and of revelation. Now, some translations translated this differently, but revelation is really the way this has to be translated. And again, the lexicon states, making fully known. So Paul is praying that they would receive something that 
that can come from God, that, that is coming from God. In the knowledge of him, he says, in the knowledge of God. This is not some higher knowledge, but the knowledge of the one who created all that is. The one who told the woman in Genesis 1, the seed of the woman would defeat the great enemy. This is majesty. The, the glory of the great gospel story. Nothing is more majestic and glorious and difficult to understand. Why would God send his son to die for sinners like us? That's, that's the majesty of the story of, of our gospel. So Paul's concern for these saints, he, he expresses this concern that there's, there's something that they, they still need. Um, there's something that they're not quite understanding. And so he prays this prayer that they would have wisdom and revelation and that it would be given to them and, and that this spirit would, would, in, uh, would invest in them, would, would cause them to learn and to grow in this way. Okay, so our hill gets a little bit steeper here. Now, and, and I, I'll admit, I had a little bit of trouble with this one, um, but I even tried abandoning the sea and it still didn't work. So Paul casts a vision for, for the saints. Paul's cast vision for the saints. He has a vision for these people and, and he's going now to express that to them. So verse 18 says, the eyes of your heart. He starts out there with that statement, the eyes of your heart. This corresponds directly with the revelation that these truths would, re, would be revealed in the hearts of these believers. We think of the heart as the place of emotion, of, of um, love. You know, the heart is we, we fall in love. We've given our heart to someone. We express the heart in a number of different ways. But that's not exactly how the Greek and Hebrew see the heart. There's a little bit more than that. <clears throat> the Bible views the heart as more as the seat of emotion, that, but it's, it's more the mission control center of our being. It's really our inner man. It's who we are. It's, it's what makes up the inner part of us. Calvin referred to it as the seat of our affections, it means the will or appetitive part of the soul. I love that statement. It's the appetitive part of our soul. What is it that drives us? What makes us do what we do? What makes us make decisions that we make? It's our appetites. It's what we long for. It's what we hunger for. It's what we strive for. If that's sin, then that's what you're working toward. That's your idol. That's what you put in God's place. God designed us for all of that to be focused on him. But when we put something else in its place, obviously we've, we've got a new God. So the, the heart is a key to understanding all of this and even understanding our own sinfulness. Our appetite is, are the things that we hunger for. It's what we crave. So our cravings determine our direction of life, right? So part of this is retraining our craving to crave something else. The terms for heart and mind in both the Old Testament and New Testament are used interchangeably. 
So, so the heart and the mind in terms of, of scripture are the same thing. The way we think, it's, it's, it's our thoughts. <clears throat> Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So how do you know what someone is thinking in their mind or their heart? What comes out of their mouth eventually, they, they tell you exactly what they think. <clears throat> Paul goes on here and says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now the lexicon says to make known in reference to the inner life or transcendent matters and thus to enlighten. So the idea is to bring light into the heart, into that mission control center, into that control area of your life. Paul is praying that God will bring light into their heart and, and light up that. Now, these are saved people, so it's, they're not, we're not talking about people who are dead in trespasses and sins, but they need a little more light there. <clears throat> it's, it's the result of, uh, so what's the result of that enlightenment? Now, Paul did not ask for something material here. He's not asking for God to give them something more in terms of money or property. Um, he's, uh, so what does he ask for? He says, so that you will know. So that you will know. So there's something that he wants them to know. Now take careful note of this. Paul is not praying that they, uh, what they will have about what they will have. Why, why does he not pray about something that they will have? Because they already have it. What, what Paul is helping, is trying to help them to understand is they already have the, the main thing. They just aren't quite realizing it. So Paul said in verse 13, he said, blessed, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3, he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Between those two verses, what are we missing? Not much, right? Absolutely nothing. We've got it all. There's no more to have. They already have it. So he's praying that they will know that they have it. That's Paul's prayer. He wants them to know what they already have. And what is it that he wants them to know that they have? He lists three things specifically. <clears throat> what is the hope of his calling? He prays to God to enlighten them about the magnificent truths of election, predestination, Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, and insight, inheritance, and sealing and the pledge of the whole and sealing in the pledge of the Holy Spirit, about which He has just been instructing. Look back at at uh, verses three through fourteen is where He goes through all of this. But if you look back there in verse uh, verse thirteen. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
So all of this that we've been given has been guaranteed to us and, it's, and we've been sealed in it and the spirit is given to us as a promise of, of that uh, fulfillment. The ultimate hope of his calling is the return of Christ. The, the, when he says the hope of his calling, it's really a looking forward to the day Christ returns. And it, and it, it, it kind of pivots on this thought. If God did the big thing, would he not do the littler thing? So God sent his son to die for our sin. God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be saved. Will he not then send his son back to take the world back and then to usher us into that eternal kingdom? If God did the big thing, he will do the smaller thing. So this hope, moreover, is not just a vague and wistful longing for the truth of goodness, but it's something assured because of the present possession of the Spirit as our guarantee. And we just looked at that. Because of the faithfulness of God who has promised that future inheritance. <clears throat> So, so the first thing that Paul wants them to recognize that they have is they have the hope of his calling. All of these things that, that Paul has listed through here are, are part of that calling. They're gifts, they're, they're investments in us as a part of our being called by God himself. Is, is that hopeful, that we have the hope of his calling Secondly, Paul wants them to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Riches. What do people do for riches? My goodness, there's just all kinds of things that we see happen in the world for, for someone to gain riches, robberies and, and, all, and just all sorts of things. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, nor is he talking about the kind of riches that the prosperity gospel seeks. They're not earthly riches like money and property and investments. These riches are of the glory of our inheritance. And again, he's reverberating back on all of these things, these promises that Paul has given us in the first part of the book of Ephesians. You know, I just... I'll just take a little segue here and point out that this is really why we study scripture in context, right? If, if we tried to study verses 15 to 20, 23 without understanding verses 1 through, through 14, we would have no understanding of it because Paul keeps referring back again and again and again to this inheritance, to this, these promises. That's what he's talking about. So we study scripture in context so that we can see those things. <clears throat> the riches of the glory of our inheritance. My goodness, what could we say about the riches of our glory, uh, the glory of our inheritance? And again, it's an inheritance that, that, was, that was given by the Spirit uh, through God. I, he refers back to, to inheritance here a number of times. And then sealed with him. We were given the spirit to seal us in that. I know I'm, I'm being redundant, but it just amazes me. So, um. <clears throat> 
So then he goes on in, first, in, in verse 19, after he's given them those three things that he wants them to understand, he says, and, excuse me, this is number three. I just got off track there. Verse 19, this is number three. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is where we really start to reach the mountaintop. We really start getting to that steep part of the climb when it's, it's getting rough and we're having to use some tools to be able to scale the mountain. What, when Paul talks about power, he means power. He's talking about a real power. And we're going to see that. He prefaces power in this, in this opening statement with the surpassing greatness of whose power? His power. It's not our power. It's his power. So, yeah, this word is the word where we get dynamite. But don't think that Paul was running around blowing things up. That's not the idea here. Um, it, it is, it, that's the word for power. Um, but the, the lexicon says that in this case, the way Paul uses power here, it's a potential for functioning in some way. So there's a potential, there's a potential power source, we could say. When we talk about power energy, we talk about two kinds of power. We talk about potential energy or power. That's, that's energy at rest. And then we talk about kinetic energy. That's energy in motion. So there's energy at rest and energy at motion. I think the best way I could think to kind of illustrate this for you is the gas tank on your car, if it has gas in it, is, is a potential power source, right? Um, so, so you have gas there, that's, that's potential power. When that gas is fed into your engine and it's, and it's fired by the spark plugs and all of that, it becomes it be transfers into kinetic energy. So it's potential energy in your gas tank. It's kinetic energy when it's firing the pistons. So that really plays out well in this passage. Paul has, he, so he's, he's going to say more about this power, but we're going to back up here just for a minute. What are those three things that Paul wants his saints to know that they already have? the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power. Okay, so, so Paul goes on. Now, if you read verse 19, you might be able to figure out there are four words in verse 19 for power. So when I say, when Paul talks about power, he means power, he means power. So it may appear in, the, in this statement uh, as being at rest, but Paul's going to show us what it's like when it goes to work. So uh, let's, let's use the illustration of your gas tank again. The gas in your tank is, is potential energy, but as it goes through the gas line and it's pumped by the fuel pump into the engine and it reaches the cylinder and it's fired by the spark plug, it instantly becomes kinetic energy. It's, it's power in motion. It's no longer power at rest. 
So in verse 19b, Paul says, these are in accordance with, first of all, working. Working is the state or quality of being active. So it's at this point that the gas reaches the cylinder and is fired by the spark plug. That, that potential energy becomes kinetic energy. Of the strength, Paul says, it's the working of the strength. That, that word is the ability to exhibit or express resident strength. So there's a, there's a, re, there's a recognized resident strength within this power that Paul's talking about that, that he wants them to understand. And then he says it's the strength of his might. And this is the fourth power word used in verse 19. It's the capability to function effectively. The capability to function effectively. So, so when we put all this together, we have, we have a power source that's being activated within us to accomplish a purpose. And he, then he goes on here and he says, which he brought about in Christ. So he's going to demonstrate for us now just how powerful this power is. Just, just, just listen to this. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now the worship team played that song tonight, same power the chorus goes like this, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us. Isn't that, doesn't that just amaze you? Doesn't that just, that just fascinates me. That I have within me because of 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 God's calling me to himself because of the faith that he's given me, I have the power in me that raised Christ from the dead. What can I not do with that? What sin could overcome me if I realize I have that power? How much power would it take to raise Christ from the dead? I kind of started to contemplate how you might figure this out for a few seconds, and then I went, that's hopeless. That's impossible. You could never figure out the amount of energy it took to raise Christ from the dead. <clears throat> I'll give you a little illustration, though. At 8.32 on Sunday morning on May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. When Mount St. Helens erupted, it launched a cubic yard of soil into the atmosphere for every single person on the face of planet Earth. Let that soak in for a little bit. Do you know how much a cubic yard of dirt is? 2,200 pounds, give or take, depending on how much moisture is in it and so forth. It's more than it would fit in the back of my truck. It would break the springs on my truck. That's one cubic yard. Mount St. Helens burned and turned to ash enough soil for one cubic yard of, of earth in the atmosphere for every person on earth. How many of you are, are old enough to remember 
1980. So do you remember Mount St. Helens? Yeah, were you, were you directly affected by it? Most people weren't. I was because I lived in northwestern Montana. Um, it, it, we, we definitely were affected by it. But most people on planet Earth were not affected by Mount St. Helens. They, they, they may have knew that, known that it happened because it was on the news. But to, to, to actually experience the ash or you know, any of the other inconveniences that were, that were thrown out of kilter when that mountain erupted. So that's the most powerful example I can think of on planet Earth. It was, Mount St. Helens was the, the most deadly and most costly volcano in the, his, in the history of the world. There were over 250 people that died and millions, billions of dollars cost because of the losses. Over 200 homes lost. That was a powerful explosion. But most people on Earth never were affected by it. So whatever power we're talking about is much more powerful than that. So what kind of power do you need? What, what, do you need more power than that? Do you need more than, than that? The amazing part of this is, is we already have it. It's already been given to us. The problem is, is we haven't learned how to use it. So, amazingly enough, Paul's not done talking about power. He's still, he's going to go on, this, this power that we have. He goes on to tell us, and, and here I, I put this as a collective summary of his prayer for the saints. Paul's utter celebration, he just launches into worship here. He's, he's just so overcome by all of this that God has given us that he just, he launches into an attitude of worship here. His utter celebration of this truth just causes him to launch into a crescendo of praise in this explanation. Notice what he says here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He just, he just kind of blurts out this list and, you know, some have said, well, those are, those are demons. That's a demon structure there. Well, I, I don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But whatever it is, the power that, that God has, has given to us, the power that raised Christ from the dead is greater than this. It's greater than all of these. It's greater than all of them put together. God raised Christ up above all of these other forms and symbols of authority and seated him at his right hand. And, verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Then he brings in a new entity here to the church. He's given it to the church. How do we know that this prayer was for us? Because, because God gave it to the church and we're part of the church, right? When Paul prayed this prayer, he was praying for us. To the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I want you to back up there for a second. Notice the absolutes in that statement. 
far above all rule. And, and actually, you could add all onto the front of each one of these, right? All rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So whatever time you're talking about, this, this prayer, Paul's prayer, this power, these things that he's promised us, that he's given us, it covers all of that. This power that the Father bestowed on his Son at his resurrection and ascension, this, is the, this power is ours. Are you familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? Um, obviously a very popular book. Uh, my, my kids had a couple of tape recordings of it, and uh, some, uh, some of them were dramatized. And we, we really got a lot of Pilgrim's Progress there for a few years. But there's one story in Pilgrim's Progress that I think relates to what we're talking about here. And it's, it's that, that story, that, the uh, part about where Christian and, and Hopeful were hiking down the narrow road... And the narrow road's hard to travel, right? That's a, that's a hard road. It's narrow and it's rocky and it gets steep at times. And so they look to the side and across the fence, Bunyan called it a stile, um, they look over and there's another path over there that runs right parallel to, this, to the narrow road. And it's a lot smoother. And so they climb over the fence and they get on the other path and they begin to hike along and they're thinking, wow, this, this, is, this traveling is so much easier. It's just this road is just so much better. And, and besides, you know, the other road's right there. If we need to go back, we'll just jump back over the fence and we'll be back on the narrow road. But they're walking along and, and they're talking and they lose concentration and they look over and the other the, the, the narrow road isn't there. So they keep going and they get a little worried and it starts to cloud up and it starts to rain and then it starts to get dark and, and they, they wanted to go back but when they tried to go back a big river filled the canyon and flooded it and they couldn't get through. And so in utter exhaustion they fall asleep under a tree. Well, the next morning giant comes out and he's surveying his kingdom and he finds these two travelers, these two pilgrims sleeping under a tree in, in his kingdom. And so he takes them and he throws them in his dungeon and he goes home and he tells his wife and his wife says, well, did you beat them? You need to go back and beat them. And so he goes back and he beats them. And then, and, and every day gets worse. Every day they're in there is worse than the day before. And it just gets worse and worse. And they're in despair. And then Giant's wife tells him, you need to go tell them that they just need to end their lives. They would be much better off if they just ended their lives. And so Giant does that. And, and Christian and Hopeful actually considered that. They considered ending their lives. Maybe that would be the answer to this. And about the time they're, they're at the bottom of the barrel, Christian reaches into his pocket and pulls out a key. He takes the key. He unlocks the door. They walk out of the dungeon. He unlocks the gate. And they walk out 
and get back on the narrow road. What's the point? He had the key in his pocket. That's the point of what Paul's trying to get across here. You have this power. It's invested in you. You just need to use it to fight the sin in your life. We must be careful how we could use this. We, we could use it as an excuse, right? If I'm not being victorious over sin in my life, I could just say, well, God hasn't enlightened me there yet. But I don't think that that's Paul's intention here. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to communicate. There is, there is an element of concurrence here of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility I believe what Paul is saying is because God actively worked this out in the life of Christ, that he will actively work this out in our lives. We not only have this power, but God will help us to work this through. The Spirit of God will help us to work through this. Now, if you're not saved, if you're here today and you have not responded to the gospel of Christ, this power can be yours simply by confessing your sin and repenting and asking for forgiveness and coming to Christ on the basis of his death and resurrection on the cross. You know, it, it, it's just something that we really need to learn to grasp. Um, we, we all battle sin every day. If there's anyone who, who's here that doesn't battle sin every day, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, because it's, it's just an ongoing battle. <clears throat> I believe it was John Owen that wrote, if you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. But you have within you the power to overcome any of that sin, any and all sin. So do you, do you struggle with addictions or pornography or drugs or alcohol or work? You, you, have, you have the power in you to fight all of those things. You can battle all of that. Do you struggle with anxiety or depression? Remember that if you've believed in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, that you have resident within you a power that will overcome all of that. And, and not only a power, but, a, but the hope and the riches, which are all his. He's given this all to us. Do you struggle in relationships at home, at church, or at work? You have the power within you. You have the hope within you. You have the, the riches within you to be able to fight all of that. It, it's interesting, as I, as I was thinking about putting these together, power doesn't do you an awful lot of good if you don't have the means or the finances to, to make it work, right? But God has given us all of this. Or, or if you get to a place of hopelessness in your life, if you really reach that place of hopelessness, it doesn't matter what you have. You have no hope. You've got nothing. But God has given us hope, riches, and power. Jesus Christ is the source, the, the sphere, and the guarantee of every spiritual blessing. And of all the spiritual riches and those who are in him have access to all that he is and has. We can repair broken relationships we can, we can bring life back where there was death. God is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. And, and that power that's working in us is able to do that. It's paramount that we understand this here. That, that if, if we don't understand 
how to implement this power. If we don't understand Paul's prayer here, if we don't understand that you have these things in you, then when you get to Ephesians 4, 1, where Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called. When you get to Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, where he says, put off the old man, renew the mind and put on the new man. When you get to Ephesians 5, 23, where he tells wives to be submissive to their husbands or 25, where he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. If you don't understand this, you're not going to get that. That's the whole concept of, of, of context. It's in a context. Paul is teaching us here what we need to know so that we can do the things he's going to tell us to do later. It's, it's really very important that we understand this. It's... Um, <clears throat> So call on God's power and stop leaning on your own, on your, your own understanding. The power of the resurrection is inside of you. Now, I would pray that, that God sees this church, this body, as Paul viewed the saints at Ephesus. And that, uh, that he, we would be seen as a spiritually mature group of people. But he's also committed to pray for them, for us, hopefully, that we would even pray for this, that, that we would be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that we would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. Do you need more than that? If you need more power than that, I can't tell you where to get it. There's no other source. But let's pray. Lord God, we are just so grateful again for your word. We're grateful for the mighty acts that you have accomplished for us. We're grateful for the gifts that you have placed in us. We're grateful for the fact that we're called, that we're predestined, that we're adopted, that, and we could go on and on and on with those words, Lord, that we are given so much. Lord, I pray for each person here tonight, each one of us, that we would learn to implement that power, that we would know that it's there. We would know that we have the hope, that we have the riches, that we have this exceeding great power that raised Christ from the dead, that seated him at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, bless us as we go. Help us to ponder deeply these things that we might be able to implement them and be a power for your gospel. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.